I'm Dave Monaco, the Alan Meyer Family Head of School at Parish Episcopal School. Welcome to the From My Angle podcast. Happy New Year, and welcome back to the second half of the podcast season and the second half of the 2020-21 school year. Throughout the fall, we explored our podcast season's theme of Together, primarily through the lens of civil conversation and discourse. Now, as the school year begins its second half, we will look at this theme together from a different perspective. Specifically, we will explore with our guests and Omari and his schoolmates how, when together, we can and do amplify one another's gifts. Indeed, we are stronger together. When individuals pool and direct their gifts toward an endeavor, be it an intellectual pursuit, an act of service, the quest for an athletic championship, or the production of a stirring expression of artistry, the power of synergy manifests itself. In episodes in this second half of the year, we will explore the incredible results and deep sense of fulfillment that come from fusing our energy, creativity, and sense of purpose with the diverse talents and gifts of others. In January and February, we will reflect on how we act and serve together on behalf of causes which matter to us In March, we will consider how athletics unites individuals of diverse backgrounds and the collective power of teamwork. In April, we will consider the creative process and how we amplify one another's gifts when we collaborate. And we will conclude the season in May with a look back at a school year like none other and draw lessons from what we have learned, redefining for a time what together meant and looked like. When considering individuals who could help us get this conversation started, today's guest came right to mind. I know Doug Deason as a successful businessman and Parrish alum parent. In fact, his daughter Reagan graduated in 2016 with my oldest son, TC. But I have also come to know Doug as a man who puts his time and his dollars behind his values. He works tirelessly for causes that matter to him. By day, Doug is president of Deason Capital Services, where since 2009, he has managed family assets and investments in a wide range of industries. But throughout his professional careers in investment, as well as commercial real estate and building, Doug has brought people together around causes that align with his values. He is active in the Republican Party, both statewide and across the country. But more related to our topic for today, Doug has unified individuals of all political stripes behind the complex, significant, substantial issue of criminal justice reform. He and his family were instrumental in starting the Decent Criminal Justice Reform Center at SMU's Dedman School of Law in 2017. Since its inception, the Decent Center has become a nationally recognized organization, bringing research, education, and advocacy for compassionate criminal justice reform, so necessary as our country strives to live into its ideals of equity and justice. Enjoy this conversation with Doug Deason as we get the second half of the podcast year underway. Well, happy new year, everyone. And welcome back to the second half of the podcast season of From My Angle. So glad to have you and hope your new year is off to a good start. You know, we've been talking about this word together and throughout the fall, we considered it around issues of civil discourse and how we listen to one another and what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like. Well, in the second half of the season, we're going to pivot some and we're going to start to talk about what happens when we leverage our gifts with those of others 
to serve to purpose, to act and create uh, beautiful things together and to perform and compete uh, in places like sports and around teamwork. And so I'm excited to get the conversation started here in January, looking at service and the commitment to cause and how we unite people around um, causes and purposes that align with our vision. And I couldn't think of a better person to get this conversation started today than an alum parent and friend, Doug Deason, successful businessman involved in a myriad of different social and political causes across the local um, and state and national level, but to talk to him particularly about an issue where he is deeply committed uh, and one that's so important to our country, criminal justice reform. He and his family have been instrumental in starting the decent Criminal Justice Reform Center at SMU's Dedman School of Law, and Doug's commitment to this, I think, is leading nationally, so I'm interested in having Doug to talk about it. Doug, Happy New Year. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Happy New Year to you, Dad. Appreciate it. So good to see you, and hope the family as well. Reagan, Doug's daughter graduated in 2016 from Parrish with my son TC. So I hope she is well, having finished up at Savannah College in art and design. Right. So Doug, help us understand Doug Decent. I mean, successful businessman, politically engaged and active, philanthropist. How is it that when you go out and meet people, you explain who Doug Decent is? Well, I just, you know, I, I, I uh, it depends on where I'm going. Number one, uh, but but you know, what I like to to do is. I think that, you know, we all have to give back. And so what I, what I try to say when people ask me, why are you doing this? Why, why do you spend so much time, effort, money? I probably spend 85% of my time, and I, we literally spend millions of dollars every year on criminal justice reform. So we, we pay to play. <laughs> so I like to say. Yeah, so, and, and, so and, you, that idea of giving back is really, is really a piece of what your driver is now as a person uh, and as a leader. Right. We've been successful uh, and in, in Dallas, you know, with, with inter international businesses and uh, local businesses. And, and we right now, I run the family office. I have. We've had one for 27 years. I've run it since uh, 2009. Um, you know, we're always politically active. And I've gotten involved in criminal justice reform on, on the periphery and mainly just through donations, uh, you know, in the around that same time, 2009, 2010. But in 2012, got really involved in literally 2014, it became the, the dominant part of my, my career, my life. It's really addictive. I mean, it's, it's addictive in that when you help, what I like about it is, is, is or liked about it, it's not as much that way now, but you can help, I was helping people, we were passing legislation in Texas nationally and other other states um that help people maybe people are already in prison to get to get out early uh because they've been over incarcerated they've served too much time they're not a danger to society um or helps people in the future because we've reduced the mandatory minimum sentences or eliminated the mandatory minimum sentences but reduced the overall sentencing to more reasonable you know guidelines we call it the correctional system but it, it's used as punishment. And there's nothing about it in general, very, very rare instances where it actually, there's a correction component to it. And so that's, we spent a lot of time working on that. Yeah, it's a really complicated topic. I mean, criminal justice reform. So I mean, I'm wondering, you know, as an issue that's complex, and we'll dig into it a little bit in its nuance, but also so important to the country, like how do you describe it in its simplest terms? When you say criminal justice reform, 
what is the one or two sentence answer if there is one to what that means to you? Well, it's probably not just a one or, you know, I, I just, it's a, we work on criminal justice form soup to nuts and that's from sentencing all the way through to prison entry. You know, we, we look at it as as soon as someone hits prison, that's, that's when re-entry should start because 95% of people in prison in jail or prison across the country are going to come out and be our neighbors. And, and we have two options. We can, we can make them better criminals or we can make them better citizens. And the way the system, the system set up right now, we make them better criminals. And I don't see the logic of that. So we have, you know, generally 70% recidivism rate over five years nationwide. It's better in some places than others, but on average, it's 70%, which means that if you know, people are going to reoffend, they may or may not end up back into the penal system, but they're going to be on probation or some, some, some way in the system. And it, it's just, a, uh, it's just not working. Yeah. So it also has equity issues to it in terms of incarceration of uh, men of color and women of color who are preponderant in in the system. Uh, youth um, uh, youth uh, rates of, of uh, criminality and how they're also brought into incarceration patterns that uh, really shape their life. And we'll get into some of those as we as we move forward. But like all of us have a story and, you know, our story shapes our values and it reflects why it is that we choose to give of our time and energy and dollars to particular causes in the way that you've chosen this one. And I know there's a, an interesting story that lies behind, um, I think, to a degree, why you've directed so much of your time to criminal justice reform. I wonder if you'd be comfortable sharing that story about really about second chances and why you think second chances and being a better neighbor is better than being a better prisoner. Sure. I'd be happy to. I won't go into the great detail, but I'll say that in, in July of 2015, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times um, that people can Google easily, Google Doug Deason, New York Times, and it'll pop right up. And then uh, in May of, of 20, I was on the cover of DMAG, and uh, it was a, a really good story that it was, unfortunately, it's so long, it's literally two glasses of wine long. So you got to really either have some patience plenty of time or take several days to read it. And I've heard it in its full, but it, it, in some. Yeah. Yeah. It, it really tells a story. And, and you know, and it talks about the, the political component of it, which is a big part of it, you know, because I've evaluated how can we help. And I'm not interested in, you know, there are a lot of good groups all around the country that, that help. And I'll get back, I'll answer your question in a second, but there are a lot of good groups that work on, to have local, small, uh, you know, groups that help a few people, one, two, three, ten people at a time. We're working at scale. You know, we want to we want to change, and not just us. We work with a lot of people. And I don't want to take credit for this. I mean, I deserve some of the credit. And you know, I've been an advisor to Jared Kushner that we can get into for, since May of 2017, and you know, helped initiate and coordinate and, and the uh, first step back. But, you know, we want to work at scale and to, because it needs, it needs to be done at scale. We're not going to fix this a little bit, a few people at a time. We've got to really change the laws. And, you know, what, what prompted me to do that was, was just, I grew up in Northwest Arkansas. We, we were, uh, you know, my family's been there since 1840. Both sides of the family were turkey, chicken farmers, grape farmers. Um, you know, neither of my parents were our grandparents were anyway wealthy. We were, you know, lower middle class, but very, you know, uh, respectable, clean. Everybody had shoes. Um, 
you know, all that kind of stuff. But, but we grew up in the, in the, we're hillbillies, frankly. We grew up in the mountains, Northwest Arkansas. At that time, it was hard to get up there. Bentonville, you know, moved, or uh, Walmart moved up to Bentonville, which is Benton County. And so it's totally changed. It's, you would, I, mean, I don't even recognize it when I go back. All the fields and creeks that I fished in, played in, and all that are all developed. And it's kind of sad, but yeah. it's, it's remarkable. But, but growing up there, there were only a few things to do. And, and so, you know, I, I played pretty hard and, and it got in some trouble and I uh, got arrested. Um, a, a friend's parents who worked at Walmart, the father or mother, one of them, I don't know which, had been transferred. And so they left the house fully furnished and the liquor cabinet stopped. And so my buddy gave me and another guy a key and said, you know, hey, if you guys want to stop in and make a drink, I'm a junior in high school. Do so, don't, uh, but don't have a party. And so, you know, without the, the benefit of social media at that time, it went viral. And it took about three or four weeks, but when it did, it got out and kids started showing up for the party. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sitting in the house, my girlfriend talking, not really paying attention. And suddenly hits me that, hey, this is turning into a party. Couldn't get anybody to leave. So I left. And I'm backing down this long drive back down to the highway. Right as I got to the road, three different jurisdictions of police pull up. Rogers, City of Rogers, City of Bentonville, and Benton County. Guns drawn, lights going, guns drawn, pull us out of the car, brisk us, you know, ask me what's going on. I explained it. They kind of lighten up. We go up. And anyhow, we end up uh, admitting that we were the instigators. They take the two of us in and uh, arrest us and and. So I have to call my mom and one, you know, it wasn't the first time I'd been arrested and frankly, it wasn't the last, but it was the only time I'd ever been arrested for a felony. And it really wasn't a felony. If we'd been able to afford an attorney, then the attorney would have said, would have, you know, just easily negotiated it down to criminal trespass. You know, that's really what it was because I had, you know, permission to be there, even if it was from a minor. And um, so what happened is we uh, call my mom. She's, I told her what it is, burglary, and she goes, oh, my gosh, is that a felony? And I said, I don't know. Hey, is that a felony? Tops, police officer says, yeah, that's a felony. And I said, yeah, that's a felony. And she just panics. And, and, you know, I have no idea what that means. I thought, it, frankly, it was kind of interesting, kind of cool. I didn't know. And, um, and it really didn't hit me even at that time. She, she, so on Monday, she, you know, I, it wasn't a very happy Sunday. And then on Monday, she calls the... Uh, uh, city attorney or the county attorney in Bentonville, and uh, it was Asa Hutchinson, who's the governor of Arkansas now, and, and uh, I've always supported him. And he, uh, uh, so she called him and he, he said, Asa, Doug got and explained it. He said, Yeah, I heard about that, Bonnie. Then, you know, don't worry about it. Let's just, let's just drop it down to criminal trespass. Doug can pay a $150 fine, which might as well have been a million dollars. And, um, he can, uh, if he keep his nose clean for six months probation, then we'll expunge his record. So, you know, I begged, borrowed for 150 bucks and uh, got it paid. And then, um, you know, kept my nose clean. And it was hard. It was between my junior and senior year. And, you know, all my buddies and friends were out water skiing, partying at Beaver Lake when they weren't, you know, everybody had jobs when they weren't working. And, uh, I didn't go because I knew they were going to be drinking or doing things that I didn't need to be doing. So I, I laid low for six months. I got also got mono during that period of time, which helped me. But so I stayed home 
mostly, and I uh, got my record explained. And that didn't hit me until I applied to the University of Arkansas and SMU for undergrad as a senior, got accepted to both. With both of them, I had to sock, check a box. Mm. And, and I'd never heard of this box, right? I'm a kid. And I get to the box and I have to check it. And I don't have to check it on I me mean, because I did not get convicted of a felony. And that's all it said back then was, have you ever been convicted of a felony? Nope, don't go check that. And that's when it hit me. And that's when I stopped and thank God that, that I was, you know, we weren't wealthy, but we were well connected. Right. And went to the University of Arkansas, but I applied for IBM and was an assistant salesman for IBM for two years while in college. There's that box. I didn't have to check it. Got out, applied to, you know, a bunch of different, I, I had multiple interviews and applied to multiple companies and ended up going to work for Cushman Wakefield, an international firm out of New York that uh, did real estate brokerage. And I, there's that box. And, it, and, and I, every time I stopped and said a little prayer and um, got to, uh, you know, just, just, just at that point, started thinking of all the people getting in that situation and they don't have the money or the connections to be able to do what we were able to make happen and it was you know and, and, and it was pretty easy but a lot of a lot of people just get in that situation and, and they there's nothing they can do yeah and a lousy court-appointed attorney not that all court-appointed attorneys or, or public defenders are bad but there are some bad ones and mm-hmm. little bad ones and they'll like a guy who works for me and, and you read about him in the DMAG article, uh, he's, he had a bad attorney. And so the attorney just said, hey, let's just plead guilty. You'll get six months probation. It's over. Well, you know, he's a convicted felon for the rest of his life. And yeah. it really developed that empathy in you, I think, to understand how um, even your minimal uh, access to, to, to sort of connection and privilege positioned you more favorably than some other individuals uh, individuals were. When, when you try to um, articulate the <clears throat> top two or three criminal justice issues, again, immensely complicated and, and inter, interwoven set of circumstances here, but like, what do you think are the top two or three most pressing criminal justice issues at play right now that you're trying to systemically address, as you noted? Um, the most, to me, the very most important thing is bail reform. And in Texas, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court ruled three or four years ago now that using schedules for bail was unconstitutional. And, you know, it's, it's what we have as a system. It's a debtor's prison. Mm. Right now, at least there at jail, which is the Dallas County Jail, there, there are you know, easily 5,000, maybe more people sitting in jail, county jail. In Dallas County, and easily 3,000 of them are there simply because they can't afford bail. So to, to put that in perspective, you know, uh, someone could get pulled over for a third time or, you know, we've actually, we actually passed a law last session uh, in 19 that uh, three strikes in the on t- speeding tickets or failure to pay fines, that kind of thing. That's no, that's no longer a jailable offense, but it was. And, and that's, that helped reduce the, the number of people there. But we, we, that's the only decent bill we passed in 19, by the way. Um, we worked on a lot, including bail reform with the governor's office. Um, but, you know, you could have three various, you know, nonviolent, pretty simple misdemeanor type. And you didn't pay fines, you didn't do this, and you get, something else and, and so you go down and you, you get arrested and you get jailed 
and you have to be within in front of a uh, uh, a magistrate in 72 hours. So you, you go in, and he sets a 150, you know, $1,500 bail, which means you could bond out for 150 bucks. But you know, you weren't paying your fines and everything else in the first place. So it's you can't afford it. So you have to sit there until you know you file your case finally goes in front of a jury or a, or a judge and it's heard. And at that point, you know, the judge will say, okay, you're, you know, just, we're going to punish you with time served and set you free. You know, you're guilty, time served, set them free. So they walk out, you know, it's hopefully just a misdemeanor, but they walk out and as they walk out, there's a deputy waiting for them. And the deputy arrests them because guess what? When they got pulled over, their car got impounded and they weren't there to get it out. So it got sold. They lost their apartment, they lost their job, and they missed child support payments. So they're now, you know, get, they get arrested for child, not, and this happens regularly, I'm not making this up. They get arrested because they didn't pay child support. And guess where they got? Right back in to the jail. Now they sit there, yeah. Now they're sitting there and they're waiting to see, uh, you know, waiting to go back in front of, and, and it's just a stupid system, it's, it's logical. And, what, would be a sec- what would be a second one besides bail reform? Uh, you know, I think across the country, we have pretty good sentencing in Texas. We went through a lot of this in 2005. Uh, starting in 2005, most of the bills were passed and signed into law by Governor Perry in 2007. You know, obviously bipartisan work, always. Um, you know, and I could go into that and what happened there. But we, we, we had mandatory minimum sentences. And, and uh, some pretty harsh sentencing rules, and we, we really lighten those up. So I think one uh, one of the things is, is just across the country and at the federal level, eliminating mandatory minimum sentences and stopping the stacking, you know, three strikes and you're out type of stuff. And then, um, you know, 80% of people who go into jail or prison have uh, addiction issues or mental health issues, 80%. So they're, they're addicted to drugs or alcohol or they have mental health issues. Well, I mean, there's no worse place you could send someone mm-hmm. with an issue like those in, than prison, you know? And and Texas is pretty good. We have diversion programs and we have mental health beds. And that was a decision made in 2005 and bills passed in 2007 to uh, uh, that, that because we're going to have to build another 17,000 bed uh, prison cells at that time. Yeah, unbelievable. Governor Perry just said no in 2005. No, tell me, give me some other thing. And they said, well, if you put vetoing our criminal justice reform bills, then we could, you know, we could create these diversion courts and diversion programs, and we could build more mental health beds, and you know, we we could start dealing with the with the the cause, not the symptoms, and not just punishment. And so he did, and he started signing. And so Governor Perry is a huge criminal justice reform champion now because it's a word. We just closed two more prisons so we've closed since 2007 we've closed 10 prisons and seven uh, juvenile detention facilities we've reduced the prison population by 25 percent you know what, what's our and that's with all the growth we've had I mean, we've easily grown 10 or 20 20 percent in 15 years 13 years and plus crime's been reduced by 32 percent with all that growth so, I mean, what Texas has been doing is working. We just got a lot more to do. We've been known as the leader because in 2005, we, we were by far the most heavily incarcerated uh, state in the union, you know, per capita. 
Now we're at number eight or nine. So we're still in the top 10, but we've reduced it dramatically and we continue to reduce. Yeah. And I mean, I'm interested, obviously, in youth issues as an educator. And I think there's um, there's a lot that could be decriminalized that uh, youth under 18 where research is showing that, you know, they don't have the frontal lobe development per your story to, to make wide decisions are being held as criminal acts. And you also mentioned, which I think is a, a big issue that is uh, also of similar interest to me around equity, just uh, legal representation for indigent people, you know, those that just can't afford access to appropriate representation um, and the work of Brian Stevenson, the Equal Justice um, Initiative, they, they've really chronicled the fact that if you're not getting good representation in the early parts of your um, uh, procedures, legal procedures, uh, sometimes the sentencing and criminalization just reflects, reflects systemic inequity too. So that creates these uh, really unjust, um, unjust patterns of, of, of imprisoning. And once that young person is put into that system, to your point, like, you, you're not getting rehabilitated. All you're getting is is exposure to those whose lives have already crumbled and fallen apart. So it's just not rehabilitative. Yeah, exactly. To go back to what you just said, uh, you know, there, there's one fallacy about this that, that I'd like to clear up in that to me. And that is, and, and of course, there'll be people who won't agree with this. There are people in, in the criminal justice reform advocacy movement that you don't. And we all know each other across the country. I mean, everybody's right. So there's this network. And we all, you know, we're friends on Facebook. We're friends on Twitter. We follow each other. We have meetings. We, you know, we go hit state capitals and, and you know, wear out politicians sometimes. And, and certainly a lot of us were involved in the First Step Act. We brought a lot of fight uh, in the left and on that. It took a lot of work and effort. But s- systemic racism is, th- th- I don't believe in systemic racism today. I think the only systemic racism left in the United States of America is uh, affirmative action. And it's systemic racism against whites and Asians. The, the, what we have here is a, a hangover effect of historical systemic racism, especially from you know, Clinton's 94 crime bill which, uh, you know, the disparity between crack cocaine and cocaine is, was like 100 times, I forget what it was, but it was, you know, so much more severe. If you got caught with cocaine, you got, you know, a lot of times just a warning and release. The cop took your coke, warned you and released you. Why? Because you were white. You were going to be, chances were, not all the time, but chances were you're going to be white. If you had crack, crack cocaine back then, it was a lot cheaper, easier to get. Chances were you're black. And so it was, it was, you know, just like LBJ's war on poverty. I mean, it was, it was meant to, to trap the African-Americans and people of color in their zip codes, to, to trap them, to punish them, to put, make them dependent on government. And that, that's what happened with the 94 crime bill. So our president, our new president-elect about to be president of the United States, you know, was, is terrible on uh, Colonel Jester and on, and I, and I hope that, you know, I, I don't know if he's got the mental capacity or, or right now at this point to really deal with it. And, I, and he won't. The problem is his vice president's even worse. You know, I mean, she's locked up more black people in California than any uh, attorney general in the history of California. So, um, you know, it's it, but, but in general, it's a hangover. What we have, what you just described is, you know, it doesn't matter if you're black, white, brown, what color you are, what race you are, what religion you are. If you're poor, and you cannot afford a, a good attorney, then the, the state's going to appoint one for you. And the chances are you get somebody who's getting paid maybe 100 bucks, and 
you know, they want to, they just want to roll through. They want to get you through and get to the next one. And because they're not making any money. And probably because they're not a very good attorney. And that's always true. Like at SMU, we have the Decent Center for Criminal Justice Reform. And between that and, and then there's a, a indigent defense center there. You know, we defend a lot of people who can't afford to defend themselves. And, and uh, but, you know, we don't care what color they are. And, and the state doesn't care what color they are. Mm-hmm. So nobody, that color has nothing to do with it, is the point. So the Decent Center is in really short time, um, probably three years, I guess, 2017-ish or so, that it got that it got started, has established itself as a national uh, voice and leader uh, on this topic of criminal justice reform and has really brought people together around this issue. What are some of their uh, specific uh, points of emphasis that have uh, allowed it to you know, raise so quickly in, uh, in, in visibility around uh, the topic of, of criminal justice reform? Probably um, our, 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 we hired an incredible executive director, Pam Metzger, and she's just phenomenal. We stole her from Tulane University and she has her uh, Degree from NYU. She, she's a, a Democrat, <laughs> and she's one. Of, I, I love her. I mean, she is. She's a, one. She's a wonderful person. She's a brilliant person. She's you know, There's so many people in this world who, um, you know, that they they get their degrees with no intentions of going out to try to make money, right? And that's, her girl's never been. Now she came from a pretty well-to-do home and family in, in Atlanta, but she is just. You know, she's really well-known. She's really well-liked. She's a great spokesperson. And what, what we've concentrated there on is uh, rural justice. And what we have in Texas is a microcosm, pretty big microcosm, of the problem that we have nationwide of rural justice. And it's true in almost every state. I mean, there maybe, you know, Rhode Island might not have this issue, but everywhere else. And that is you have, you know, the urban centers, where most people are concentrated. So there's you know pretty good justice system there. You have plenty of access to judges, you know, jails, judges, defense attorneys. But you get out in the rural Texas, you know, down in the southwest and down by Big Bend. And you know, there may not be an attorney in the county. And so you get arrested for something. And and, and there's a it's a perverse incentive on for a lot of these jails because they have uh, um they get paid by the state if they have people in jail, in, in the jail. If they don't have someone in the jail, then they don't get paid, right? So they are, that it's, this is true. It's hard to believe, but you know, 17 to 20,000 people a year, mostly rural, are arrested for non-jailable offenses uh, because they need to put people in their jail and get paid by the state. And we've got a lot uh, uh, that we, we actually... Uh, uh, or we'll get passed. I don't think we'll have any problem getting passed this year uh, that, that will fix that. That, that uh, there has to be just cause to arrest somebody if they're pulled over for a, a non-jailable offense. And they have they really to focus on, on research and statistic and narrative, the stories to really try to bring, um, I think, a humanization uh, to, to the reality of criminal uh, justice in, uh, inadequacy. And so uh, that may be an, another reason why uh, the, the center has very quickly blossomed as a, as a national voice on the issue. Right. Uh, now, right. The data is really important. And, and, and but, but what we do is we're not just a, you know, a, a think tank or a do tank. We, 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 they literally go out and they do things. We can use their data to, to pass laws. 
or to try to pass laws. And, you know, and then it's, it's just an effort. You, you fail. You know, you go in, you try to pass a law, you fail. You go in, you pass, a, you know, it gets whittled down, you pass a little bit. You go in the next time, show how that first part was effective and, and yeah, legislators add on to it. So it's just a, it's a, you know, taking bites out of the apple is, kind of, is what I would say. You can learn more about Decent Center, decentcenter.org, uh, again, at the Dedman School of Law at SMU. I guess I'd wrap it up, like, as a leader, what have you recognized uh, is a necessary set of skills or attributes to bring people of different perspectives, whether they're political or regional, uh, what have you, together around an issue like criminal justice reform? What, what, what uh, skills that you possess or tactics that you've used have helped you unite folks behind this cause that's so important to you? Well, I think it's the cause as much as anything. I, you know, I'm pretty conservative and, you know, I'm pretty vocal about that. I'm pretty active in the Republican Party at all levels. Um, but I have a lot of friends who are, are, are Democrats and I respect them and respect their views. And we go to dinner and we talk and we treat each other respectfully in person. We treat each other respectfully. You know, Peter Brodsky mm -hmm. is, you know, a city leader, great guy. Mm -hmm. Very staunch liberal from he's from New York and city, New York City. And uh, I served on the board at Green Hill with his wife. And um, and I, I just love them. They're, they're great. But, you know, we, sometimes we get we, there are a lot of things we don't agree on. But you right. know what? Mostly, it's mostly we, we agree on the outcome, the, the, the goal. We have the same goal. It's just how you get there. That's yeah. you that we don't agree on. And so yeah. we've, um, you know, he, he and I just have agreed not not to attack each other on social media. And, you know, he gets kind of frustrated and they'll go off a lot. It's not just me, it's others too. Um, so, so I think it's as much the issue. For, to, for our grand opening of the, the center, I had spoken on a panel and a couple of panels and gotten to know Van Jones and, you know, the CNN commentator. So, and this was 17, I think. And so we uh, had... I got him to come. We got him to come down, and had a, uh, uh, a a program called Unlikely Allies, and it was Van and me on stage talking about you know why we were passed about criminal justice reform. And I really, really like Van Jones. And there's some clips of that on the uh, on the website at Decent Center if you want to watch a few of them. They're great. Exactly. Yeah. So he, he is. Uh, uh, you know, he and I can talk about two things. Criminal justice reform and family. Other than that, there's not a whole lot we, we agree on. But we just, so we just don't talk about it, you know? We talk about criminal justice reform and family. And so you, you, know. found a, you, found, you have found a way back to the first part of our podcast season around civil discourse and, and being able to sit down with people who differ than you. And you, you, you and I differ on lots of things uh, in terms of our beliefs as, as well. But like that's never stopped us from sitting down and being able to exchange our thoughts. Like That sounds like it's the first thing. If you want to get people behind this issue, you've got to suspend um, some, some, of your, some of your value and belief sets and make sure that you're listening and hearing the wow. other part, right? And so that sounds like it's a big yeah. piece of the work. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then you've just gotten really skilled at the messiness of legislative compromise and the persistence that it takes. I would say you're also, you know, kind of stubbornly persistent to sort of work through the cumbersome uh, political processes that move things forward. So I don't know if you would cite persistence or stubbornness, uh, you know, in the best sense of the term of the word as another trait that a leader needs to carry through. But this is really hard work 
you were just mentioning your time in Mississippi. This is just really hard work to to get to those outcomes you want to have because you've got to get you've got to get coalition and you've got to get some sort of agreement, right? Yeah, so it's you know you work on a bill. We worked on a bill, and, and I wasn't the main driver of it, but I was. You know, we spent money on it, spent a lot of time. I'm also on the board of Lone Star Justice Alliance, which is a left wing do tank, and um, the the, the Elizabeth Henneke, who runs it, is just, she's brilliant. She deals with uh, uh, diverting young, you know, older teenagers and young adults out of the system and in, into some kind of diversion program or training or therapy or whatever. And she, she's fantastic. She's just fantastic. And I've worked with her in another uh, program before. And so she started this. And, and um, you know, we worked really hard to get a bill passed and the governor vetoed it. And, and we worked with the governor's criminal justice and policy guy. And that person said, do this, this, and this, and he'll sign it. So we did this, this, and this, and we got it passed out of both houses unanimously. And then he, then he vetoed it. Well, he had a plan, but he didn't, they didn't, he, or nor his chief of staff, they didn't relay that plan to me. And that was that they were going to do an executive order to create, to do, take care of this because, and there are reasons why I don't go into, which is fine. But they should have said, hey, we're going to, we don't want that. But they had their CJR policy guy telling me, so we're, we're working together now. And I actually owe the office a call um, on several bills, um, mainly bail reform. And we, but he and I had to sit down at the mansion at the governor's table, at his table. And you know, he chewed my, you know, what, and I, I kind of let, gave him my two cents worth. And then, you know, we kind of figured out that, that, we weren't community. We didn't have a good communication stream going, and so we figured out kind of, you know, number one, this chief of staff I need to make up and bury the hatchet, and two, we need to commu- start communicating more. And so it's really worked out great, and we'll see how it works out. But I think that we're going to get some things in cooperation and help with the governor's offices this session in Texas. Uh, we'll get some bills passed. Yeah, so coming together uh, around a cause or purpose like criminal justice reform, where you know is values driven. Uh, it requires tenacity and persistence and great communication. And it really requires working with people who may not agree with you on every uh, point uh, of, of measure that you've got to find some ability to compromise and move it forward. I commend you for this work. I think if anybody believes in, uh, in equity and in, in hu- in hu- in humane treatment of individuals who make mistakes and can uh, find a second chance and a, and a, and a better life afterwards, uh, who believe that um, you know, we can we can make uh, individuals better and our and our communities better. That they should uh, begin to learn a little bit about criminal justice reform. They can start by looking at the work of the Decent Center right here in Dallas for the fine things that um, Dr. Metzger is doing there, and and uh, commend you for your efforts uh, and keep going. I know it takes a lot of your time and energy. Don't know how you do your day job, but keep going. Um, it, it's great to it's great to learn from you. Thanks for spending time with me today on the on the From My Angle podcast. Okay. Have a great week. Thanks, Doug. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this edition of the From My Angle podcast. Please share it with friends and colleagues in your network. In our next episode, we will shift our focus to Parish and how we come together here to support causes that matter to this community. Omar will be with me and be joined by Shannon Longfield, Parish's Director of Community Service and the Leadership Institute. And a couple of student leaders will be along as well to talk together with us about one of Parrish's tenants, service. 
Until then, thanks for joining me. We'll see you next time on the From My Angle podcast.